Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... Defence Minister Miles has been actively misleading the Australian public now, knowing full well that Australia will be taking nuclear waste from US and UK nuclear submarines. We thought we weren't getting any nuclear waste from the AUKUS submarine deal, but it now looks like we'll be taking on nuclear waste from 2027. Where is it likely going to go? We find out. Also on the program... They're like this beautiful iridescent harbinger of the holiday season. They're also quite large. Like, this is a beetle that you can hear it when it's coming. It's like right towards you. What's happening to all of our Christmas beetles? One factor driving the decline of Christmas beetle numbers is habitat loss as increasing urban encroachment reduces the number of plants that the insects rely upon to survive. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first, a low-level radioactive waste management facility is planned for near Perth, and US and UK submarine nuclear waste could be stored here as early as 2027, revealed by newly obtained Freedom of Information documents by former Senator Rex Patrick. Yet Defence Minister Richard Miles has previously previously said that we won't be accepting nuclear waste from any country. Francis Dew asked Green Senator David Shoebridge if this was true. I've always thought it's it's useful to listen to what governments say, but really important to test what they do. And Defence Minister Miles has been actively misleading the Australian public now, knowing full well that Australia will be taking nuclear waste from US and UK nuclear submarines when they are uh, stationed in Australia. It turns out he's known this for months and months and months and has kept the public in the dark. Very frustrating. What does this say about the way the Labor government has handled this? We, we now have two data points that I think should really worry the public. Uh, the, the first is freedom of information documents that have been released that make it explicit that Australia will absolutely be, expect, be, be accepting and having to dispose of tonnes of low and medium-level nuclear waste associated with servicing UK and US nuclear submarines that are stationed in Australia. But I think the second and, in the longer term, more disturbing data point is the Labor has now introduced legislation into the Parliament, which opens the door to receiving not just low and intermediate level waste, but also high level nuclear waste uh, from UK and US nuclear submarines. And that could be literally tonnes and tonnes and tonnes of highly toxic particularly um, UK uranium that is currently sitting in rusting, obsolete UK nuclear submarines and they are desperate to find a home for it. So what is the difference between low-level waste and other nuclear waste? The low-level and intermediate-level waste is waste that's produced when you're servicing a nuclear submarine. That may be some uh, protective clothing or some uh, some some machinery uh, or some submarine components that have been used when you're servicing a nuclear submarine, but you're not diving into the reactor space. There are are parts of the submarines that are obviously very well shielded from radiation, um, but we're talking about the kind of waste that's produced 
um, through the routine servicing of a nuclear submarine. The high-level waste is the waste that forms the fuel for the reactor cores. And at the moment, there are literally tonnes and tonnes and tonnes of that waste in the United Kingdom um, sitting in rusting, decommissioned nuclear submarines where they, they have been desperately searching for a solution for that waste in the 60-odd years since they launched their first nuclear submarine. And Labor's legislation opens the door to that being disposed of on Australian soil. So what then are the alternatives to disposing nuclear waste then? The United Kingdom, um, 60 years after launching their first nuclear submarine, uh, currently have a committee on um, a high-level waste disposal committee that says that they have a potential plan to provide a geological waste uh, facility sometime in 2050 or 2060. I mean, these timeframes are just ridiculous and they show just how dangerous and really impossible to deal with the high-level nuclear waste associated with a a nuclear submarine are. Given that, the obvious lesson to learn is don't create the waste. Don't purchase a nuclear submarine and don't accept that level of waste into our country. And um, it's difficult to understand how Labor could be recklessly taking us down a pathway of obtaining nuclear submarines when they still have no idea at all how to deal with the waste that will inevitably be produced. David, you've been a staunch opposer to the deal since it was announced two years ago. What's your outlook on how the Australian government has handled it to date? Mm. It really doesn't matter how you look at this AUKUS deal, uh, whether it's the mind-blowing um, expenditure of $368 billion of public money for nuclear submarines or the impossibility of finding a viable way of disposing of the waste that isn't going to poison land and water on this precious continent um, or it's drawing us into... Uh, a deeply unwanted conflict between the United States and China. No matter which aspect you look at of the AUKUS deal, it's bad for Australia. It's bad for our geopolitical security. It's bad for our environment and it's bad for our economy and our defence posture. Uh, There's one obvious solution to it, which is to scrap it. Senator David Shoebridge from New South Wales speaking there with Francis Dew. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. Have you ever wondered why mathematicians are still using chalk and blackboards? A typical image of a mathematician is that of a teacher at the front of a lecture hall writing on a blackboard. That image persists to this day as Stanford University still runs mathematics lectures with chalkboards. This practice isn't unique to Stanford, however, as mathematicians continue to prefer using blackboards over whiteboards and smartboards. Stephen Samaras asked Associate Professor Pierre Portal of the ANU just why blackboards persist in the study of mathematics. A key part of doing mathematics is to communicate mathematics between different people. And that's something that's quite difficult to do because of the nature of mathematics as a language. And mathematicians find that having the blackboard in particular really helps with that communication. Are there any specific brands of chalk that you use? 
So yes, we do use Hagoromo Chalk. Uh, it's a brand that comes out of uh, South Korea that is extremely good. And by extremely good, I mean, you know, has the right density. It lasts a long time. Uh, it doesn't change in the density of the writing. It doesn't make awful noises. It, it flows nicely when you write with it. Yes, we do enjoy it lots and we find that uh, it's how do different boards affect the writing and teaching experience? Yeah, so it's really a question about fluidity and also all sort of little things that could be annoying. So you know, the, the resolution, the visibility of what you write, potentially changing from one part of the board to another, the speed that you write, changing the sound that it makes. So there's all these different aspects. You have like a poor quality blackboard, like typically a piece of wood with just, just a bit of paint, blackboard paint over it, you're going to have this constant little annoyances and all that gets in the way of what we're trying to achieve. So, but again, then blackboards, which are very difficult to find these days, make a big difference. And we still find them, you know, in old institutions. Unfortunately, in Australia, even our old unis are still pretty young by world standards, and we have trouble finding this kind of quality blackboards. How do students and other mathematicians feel about working with blackboards, especially the younger ones? I think the younger ones, so what you find, there's a bit of a difference here uh, when we talk about students versus, I mean, students like undergrad students versus when we talk about research mathematicians that are starting at the uh, PhD students level. So when you get to the, the higher level and the communication becomes a lot more important and challenges of the complexity of the things we're trying to communicate become more important, then people will be very attached to having good boards as a mean of communication. It's less true at the uh, undergraduate level because people have been used to learning in different ways. Uh, they certainly want to be able to have uh, recordings, flexibilities in how they, they access the information. And so we use other techniques uh, with our first year or second year teaching. But very rapidly, you realize actually these techniques are pretty inefficient to uh, to communicate mathematics. So there, there certainly isn't at the level of research mathematicians, there isn't a change with the new generation. If anything, the new generation is becoming more obsessive about uh, their blackboards. Should blackboards be adopted by other disciplines and sciences? I, I think um, that's probably less critical in a lot of other disciplines because in a lot of other disciplines you're speaking and so communications can happen in other ways. But because mathematics in itself is a language, because it's a language that used this very condensed symbolic way of uh, expressing ideas, for us, the boards are critical. I think it will be less so in other disciplines but the disciplines that use mathematics a lot, and a lot of disciplines these days, you know, physics to finance, are using them. So more the closer they get to mathematics, I think the more they, they would benefit from it. Do you think that educational institutions will move back to the blackboard, or will we stay where we're at, where it's still a niche thing? I would very much hope that quite a few institutions might decide to move back. Not, you know, not as a systematic thing. I mean, obviously, these days in particular, it's very important to have, you know, every piece of lecture or seminars recorded and being able to access in many ways, not just by being present in the room at that time. But I think we've also made a bit of a mistake in forgetting what we were getting out of all pieces of technology like the, the blackboards, moved our transfer of information to a way of transferring information that, if I'm being a bit harsh, I would uh, describe as fake. So the flow of information has increased dramatically. We are all used to 
skimming through lots of different windows open on our computer at the same time. But I think people are becoming less effective at actually uh, absorbing the information. So I think that we're going to see a, a return to a slower form of thinking because that is something that humans can do in a way that AIs can do at the moment. And so the technology that accelerates the flow of information, they're useful but they are not the answer to everything we need to do. So I think there is a return of slow things, you know, slow food, slow thinking as a counterpart for some of what's happening with technological information uh, revolution. So yes, from that point of view, I think at some point, some of the higher education institutions are going to wake up to the fact that maybe we are not transferring information effectively by just focusing on the speed at which we transfer it. Associate Professor Pierre Portal of the Australian National University there speaking with Stephen Samaras. Reception isn't always the best out here in the bush. But if I miss The Wire, I listen to the podcast. The Wire. Across Australia weeknights on Indigenous and Community Radio. And now podcast. For many years, the iridescent presence of Christmas beetles during summer on the lawns of Australian backyards were a common sight. However, a perception exists that these iconic Australian insects have declined in quantity. Stephen Hill asked Associate Professor Tanya Latty from the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney just why Christmas beetles have captured so many people's imagination. (laughs) Well, a few things. I think for one thing, they used to emerge en masse right around the holiday season. So they were like this beautiful iridescent harbinger of, of the holiday season. They're also quite large. Like this is a beetle that you can hear it when it's coming. It's like right towards you. Many of the species are beautiful. They have some amazing colors, including some species that look as if they're made out of gold. And they're also harmless. So it's kind of rare to have this recurring experience of a big easy-to-handle, beautiful beetle that just arrives just when you're getting ready to take your holiday break. So what surprised me was that there's actually 36 different Christmas beetle species. That's quite a diverse range of colours and shapes. Do you you have any favourite? That's a great question. My favourite is probably one of the most common ones, the washerwoman Christmas beetle. It's the most commonly cited beetle, at least where I am in Sydney, Um, but also across many major cities. For beauty, though, one of the golden species, Anoplognathus aureus, which honestly looks like someone made a beetle out of gold and then polished it. I've never seen one live one. Love to see it because they are just gorgeous. A lot of people have been asking, where, where have all the Christmas beetles gone? And I believe that you're currently carrying out a study to identify the number of beetles. Can you tell us a little bit about the reasons why people think the beetle population is diminishing in size, particularly around Sydney? Yeah, so I've only been in Australia for 15 years. I moved here from Canada, and the entire time I've been here, I've never seen more than one Christmas beetle or two where I live. But my neighbours have stories about remembering when. They saw lots of Christmas beetles, even in the inner city. And, you know, often when you hear stories like, oh, there was a lot more of something when I was a kid, you think, well, memories can be a bit fallible. We often remember things from when we were children as being bigger or more abundant. But I hear this story time and time again from people, enough that it's almost a universal story amongst people that have been in Australia for more than 20 years. And so that makes me very nervous and makes me think that something is really happening here. So we're looking at much bigger things. Most common cause of declines for almost everything is habitat loss. So whenever you convert native forests into housing or agriculture, you lose those species that are most dependent on that habitat. 
I strongly suspect that some Christmas beetles are more sensitive to those types of changes than others. And so the ones we're still seeing in the cities might be the ones that are a bit more adaptable. Whereas the ones that we're only seeing in national parks, they may be species that are dependent on a smaller range of plants, for example, as adult food sources. But you know what? It's probably not one thing. In a lot of cases, you have all of these different factors. So insecticide use, many of the broad spectrum insecticides that we use against things, the larvae of Christmas beetles are very similar in appearance to the grubs you may have found in your garden. They're big, cream-colored, quite chunky. They have big red heads. And those beetles will also be affected if you use a, a lawn treatment, for example, against lawn scarabs. Or so it could be a combination of those things. Climate change as well. When we start to get more extreme weather, it's too much rain. That can saturate the soil where the larvae live and essentially drown them. But on the flip side, if it's too dry and the sound that soil becomes compacted, dry, and hard, then the larvae aren't able to tunnel through and are not able uh, to emerge when they're adults. Now, I believe the Australian Museum has an app to help people identify all the different species. Does this allow for the crowdsourcing for citizen scientists? Uh, no, so there's actually two apps. So the one that the Australian Museum has is great if you want to learn more about Christmas beetle species. They have some beautiful pictures of the different Christmas beetles you can find in your area. So it's a really nice resource if you wanted to take a deep dive into a Christmas beetle identification. But if you'd like to help us figure out what's going on with the Christmas beetles, we're using an app called iNaturalist, which is a global biodiversity database. It allows you to upload sightings of any living thing, so it doesn't have to be Christmas beetles. And that data then becomes available for the public, but also for scientists like myself to be able to use to look at the distributions of insects. The other really cool thing about iNaturalist is that it will run a machine learning algorithm that tries to identify your sighting. So don't worry if you're not sure if it's a Christmas beetle or not, because the app will try to identify it for you and will give you tips about what it likely is. Once it's uploaded, if it's a Christmas beetle, it automatically gets included in our project. You don't have to tag us or anything. And we have a team of volunteers that are out all the time on iNaturalist going through sightings, correcting ones that may have been misidentified. Uh, and in the year that we've run the project, we've had some really cool findings, including four species that hadn't been seen in decades. And some of our community observers turned those in and were you know, quite happy to find out that in some cases it was the only photo of a live insect for that species. What, what role do Christmas beetles play in the ecosystem? Yeah, Christmas beetles have quite a few roles. As adults, because they emerge at a predictable time of the year, every year, they're like this huge pulse of food for animals like reptiles, birds, mammals, exactly the point of their life cycle where many of them are raising up their young. It's a really important food source. They're also quite clumsy and harmless, the real easy pickings for the, the little ones. The larvae of Christmas beetles live in the soil, and as they're tunneling and moving through the soil, they're helping to aerate the soil, turn the soil, and introduce organic matter into the soil. So they're probably quite important for soil health. Associate Professor Dr. Tanya Latty from the University of Sydney speaking there with Stephen Hill. Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. In the aftermath of Cyclone Jasper, communities in Queensland will be experiencing a downturn in tourism during the holiday season. In the wake of these effects, tourism operators must look to the future and shore up their preparations for future cyclone seasons. Developing practical solutions and collaborating with other operators is crucial. Stephen Samaras asked Professor Sarah Gardner of the Griffith Institute for Tourism about why it was so important to prepare for strategies in the face of cyclone season. 
So what we can see with the increasing um, impact and frequency of severe weather events, such as what's just been experienced up in Cairns, is that um, businesses and communities need to be more prepared for cyclones and other events that may happen um, that can affect their ability to operate and also have a really big impact in the short and the long term in terms of the continuation of their business. How affected is the tourism industry by the effects of Cyclone Jasper? We have the immediate effects. So people that were planning holidays in Cairns right now are probably having to reorganise their travel plans. Um, the best case scenario is they actually just defer their travel, so organise a different date in a different time. But really important for the tourism industry is that they reactivate the destination as soon as possible, so get visitors flying back into Cairns as soon as possible and, and travelling back into Cairns by other means um, as soon as possible just to make sure that the tourism industry doesn't have too much of a disruption in the longer term. Does a reduction in tourism affect recovery by a lack of stimulation of the local economy? Yeah, the tourism industry in destinations like Cairns is is pretty huge. Um, for example, before the pandemic, about one in five uh, employees in, um, in, in Cairns worked uh, within the tourism industry. So when you've got this disruption, it has quite a big impact. Um, luckily, um, tourism destinations are pretty prepared for these sorts of things to happen um, and have pretty good plans in place to, to reactivate tourism as soon as possible. Um, also using things like incentives, maybe um, uh, through marketing campaigns and also running events in the destination are great ways to bring visitors back. What are the initial steps of recovery for the tourism industry? Well, I think um, thinking about your dynamic capabilities are really important. So thinking about the relationships and the organisations that you have good relationships with um, prior to the disaster striking. So making sure that you have those relationships prior, knowing what resources are at your disposal um, and then activating those resources as soon as possible um, once disaster strikes so you can then um, obviously get back on your feet as soon as possible. What technologies can be used to improve disaster preparedness for businesses and individuals? Well, in Queensland, we have the disaster dashboards, which send out alerts, but also um, you can see the social media feeds and other information um, around um, when a disaster is uh, imminent for a destination. Um, we can also use tools. I mean, even the Bomb um, Weather app is really handy uh, for a lot of destinations in terms of planning their trip. Um, and also there's specific uh, disaster readiness apps um, such as the one developed by EarthCheck where businesses can actually use an app to actually plan and prepare for a disaster and then have all of the information available at their fingertips on their phone. Usually you've got your phone with you when things are happening um, and have at your fingertips um, to be that access during a disaster event. How do local governments uh, assist or hinder disaster preparedness? Local governments are really in the central line in terms of disaster management. Often they're, they're running the evacuation centres and they're at the forefront of the disaster management planning. Um, so they play a really critical role in terms of actually the response to a disaster. Um, and they're also very important. Um, most local governments will have uh, thing, uh, strategies and plans in place and training capacity building to prepare communities and businesses for disasters. Um, and then obviously after the disaster strikes, working really closely with the local government as well as the regional tourism organisation uh, to get businesses back on their feet as soon as possible, um, get people working again in those businesses um, and then obviously bringing visitors back to the destination. 
How can locals get involved with assisting in disaster preparedness in tourist areas? I think really thinking about what resources you have at your disposal, um, what you could do to assist if there was a disaster, um, being really engaged in the work that the council is in your local area is doing um, in terms of disaster preparedness um, and then really just staying up to date in terms of what is happening. Um, and then there's just good old hospitality. If you've got visitors in your destination and a disaster strikes, just making sure that you're being uh, really hospitable to those visitors and making sure they're well looked after. Professor Sarah Gardner from the Griffith Institute of Tourism there speaking with Stephen Samaras. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.